Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis, and I'm the host of the podcast. And today we have Frank Costello on the line coming to us from North America. Thanks for coming in and having a chat with me, Frank. Thank you so much, Brent. It's an honor and a privilege to be on your show. Looking forward to it. Oh, it's cool. I think we're going to have a really cool conversation today. So for everyone out there that doesn't know who you are, tell them about yourself. Yes, uh, I've been a golf professional since uh, 1977. I started as uh, an assistant professional at the uh, Lockmore Country Club in Gross Point Woods, where I worked for Class A PGA professional Jim Picard, who was a former tour player and just an outstanding teacher. And I was very lucky to be able to work for Jim as an apprentice for a couple years. And uh, that's where I started my career at. And then from there, I became the head professional at St. Clair Golf Club in 1979. And from 1979 to 1984, I was the head professional. And then in 1984, I became the general manager of the club for five years, from 84 to 89. Then from uh, 1990 to 91, I was the general manager at Paint Creek Country Club in Lake Orion, Michigan. And then in late 1991, I went back to Lockmore Club only as the general manager this time. So it was quite of a quite a big promotion from when I was there previously. And I was the general manager at Lockmore Club from about 1991 to April of 1994. And then the superintendent at Lockmore, Bill Roberts, and I bought a golf course in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And we ran that for 13 years. We had our own golf academy, um, did a lot of different types of clinics, individual lessons, uh, had a huge junior program. We started with 30 kids the first year, and within five years, we had built it up to 125 kids. Wow, it's impressive. It was just a phenomenal program. We also got involved in a uh, development company up there where we were on an old military base. We bought the golf course from the government. And uh, we formed a development company with a couple other business people up in that area. And we bought 100 military houses. We bought the old officers club. Uh, we bought the old building operation, which is like a hotel. And we, we turned basically this complex into a, a more or less a resort type area. Uh, we did, you know, they did cross country skiing and snowmobiling and things like that in the winter time and then obviously in the summertime we were heavily involved in the golf course that's really cool there's heaps of um wide wide variety of experiences there which has opened me up to a to a whole heap of different questions that i'm sure we can we can <laughs> explore during this time but um the, the first thing i'm interested in is you're obviously pga professional and did you did your training um dare i say a couple of years after i was born so a long, <laughs> well let a me long tell you how I, I went through it i went through it kind of the old way um they, I, the college that I graduated from started the first professional golf management program in the United States. I just happened to graduate the quarter before they started the program. So what I had to do was I had to go through, uh, gain my PGA membership the old way, which was I had to attend uh, three business schools. I had to accumulate so many work credits uh, working for a Class A PGA professional, 
Uh, there's some classes I had to take. I had to take an oral exam. I had to take a, a plain ability test. Um, then I had to uh, submit paperwork to the PGA and have this paperwork reviewed by the uh, the board of directors of the Michigan section PGA. And uh, it took me about six years <clears throat> to become a class A member of the PGA because there was a lot of things that had to be done. And obviously, you know, uh, taking a plain ability test and doing some of this book work and getting my work credits took a long time. And then in the course, during the course of this, Brunt, I actually became the head professional at St. Clair Golf Club before I was a Class A member of the, of the PGA. I was just an apprentice at the time. So my work credits went on a monthly basis from one credit for working for a PGA professional down to a half a credit. So it just took me a little time to accumulate everything. And, uh, at, and I think I became a Class A member of the PGA in 1983. So it took okay. me six years. So how does that work that you get a head professional job without being a fully qualified professional? Well, <clears throat> kind of a funny story. Two of the members at Lockmore Club, where I was an apprentice at, um, leased the St. Clair Golf Club. There was no golf professional there, and they wanted to hire someone. And the professional that I worked for recommended that I go talk to these individuals. Um, you, you could, I, I was enrolled in the PGA, more or less, but I just was not a PGA Class A member. So we could still, you know, accept a job and, and take a job and, and uh, do the things that a head professional would do not being a Class A member at the time. I continued to work towards my Class A membership as I was uh, working at St. Clair Golf Club. Okay, that's, that's that's pretty cool. It's interesting that, that wouldn't wouldn't happen in Australia, I don't think. I can't imagine our PGA allowing anyone to be a head professional that wasn't fully through the trainee program. So interesting little story there. So you said you did business classes as part of your PGA training. What coaching training did you do? Well, coaching training uh, as part of being an apprentice and part of the bookwork of going through the apprentice program when we'd go to these business schools, you'd have teaching classes there. So there was people like Dr. Gary Wyron. There was, um, <clears throat> trying to, it's been a long time, Brent, but there were some very, very notable teachers that taught us how to teach. Uh, then the other way I learned more about teaching was from working for Jim Picard, who was the head professional that I was working under at the time. Um, the way I started, Brent, was primarily I worked a lot of group classes. You know, I did a lot of kids' classes, a lot of women's clinics before they started letting me work one-on-one -on -one with individuals. And the one-on-one <laughs> uh, the, the, the -on -one lessons that I started with were typically pretty high handicappers, you know. Um, I kind of a funny way to say this, but the people that had professional really didn't want to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a fair point. That's a fair so, point. So, you know, the, those became my customers and I started learning through them. And obviously as my skills started increasing and I started, you know, learning more, um, I, I was able to start working with a lot better players and different calibers of players instead of just group clinics, juniors, and, you know, lower level players. 
No, I, I, I think that's a that's a great little strategy. I, I talk to young coaches coming out and say, use the kids as your your experiment, uh, your, your your experiment on your coaching. So don't be afraid to to get out there and coach the kids because you can you can tend to screw them up a little bit and fix them up later <laughs> on. I find. So. Funny story, Brett. I did have one uh, one young uh, young kid at Lockmore when I was working there tell me that my grip screwed up his game. Okay. <laughs> so you you completely destroyed that kid by the yeah, yeah it definitely destroyed him at that point in time <laughs> completely your fault which i'm sure was not true but i found also just from a coaching business point of view that if you coach the kids you tend to pick up the parents as well as students yeah did I, you find I, that I, I did find that, especially later on when I had my golf academy and when we started growing our junior program. At, at the clubs that I worked at, when I did, uh, you know, at St. Clair Golf Club, I grew that junior program again from about 20 kids to 40 to 50 kids. And then when we owned our golf course, like I told you, we went from 30 to 35 kids all the way up to 125. So, yeah, you you do tend to pick up the uh, – the parents because they see how much fun the kids having or they see the improvement that the, the the child is making and they start thinking hmm maybe I should take some lessons you know maybe this would help me too uh, you know as an instructor that a, a, a lot of times people are hesitant about taking lessons for some reason you know they think that the professional is going to completely change their game and make them try to do things that they can't do or don't want to do. So, um, yeah, I, I I think a lot of times when a parent can see what you're doing with the child and they see the improvements that the child's making, they're more willing to come and see you and uh, take some lessons from you. Yeah, no, certainly a great strategy. Um, you stole a bit of my thunder before. I wanted to ask you a question about early influences, and you said you had a really good head professional that you worked under early on in your career. Who were some of the other coaches that influenced you as a coach early on in your career? Well, uh, I would tell you um, Bill Strasbaugh was an uh, he, he's, he, he was an older gentleman, one of the best teachers in the in the PGA of America, he he had a big influence on me. Um, another person that Jim McLean had a big influence on me. I read a lot of books and I went to seminars that he put on because I liked his style. He had a very good way of communicating to a student, keeping it very simple and yet very effective. Um, so those are just a couple of the people that that I look towards. Uh, another couple guys were Eddie I. Barguin. Uh, he was uh, he was the actually the Michael Jordan's first teacher. He was the golf coach at North Carolina when Michael Jordan was a student there. And Dean Smith, the basketball coach, told Eddie, "Look, you got to keep this kid busy. <laughs> Teach him how to play golf." <laughs> so Eddie yeah, taught him yeah. how to play golf. But Ed, Eddie again was one of the a very, very um, eloquent speaker. He was a good communicator. He used a lot of um, different teaching devices. And I went to a couple of seminars that he put on. Uh, he greatly influenced the way I did a lot of things, especially later on in my career. 
Yeah, no, that's it. I think it's really important for coaches to have someone that they they can sound ideas off or spend time with early in, in their career to build their own skills. And um, it sounds like you had some pretty pretty decent people to to to, to chase and follow and and see their, their skills and help help build your own. Yeah, Jimmy Picard, who who I worked for uh, as an apprentice, Brent was he was a, a very skilled player. He was from Louisiana. He had uh, he had learned the game from Lionel and Jay Abair, and uh, I think it was Lionel won the PGA Championship back in the early fifties. And uh, they taught Jimmy, you know, not only how to play the game but how to teach the game as well. And I was fortunate yeah. to to be able to learn a lot from him. No, no, that's really cool. Um, I'm keen to actually get about get into your coaching and how it's changed over the years. So obviously things have evolved um, over time. So is there one thing that stands out for you as a coach that you, you used to coach that you don't coach now? Well, I would tell you this, the use of video, I wouldn't teach now without video. I mean, for years and years, you know, video wasn't part of my teaching process. But today, you know, I use video. I, I use a launch monitor. I'm using a lot more uh, teaching aids and tools than I did in the past and not just relying on maybe ball flight alone. Um, that's where I've seen teaching change quite a bit is just the 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 use of technology and how you can use it to um, help some of the things that you're trying to teach a student. You know, uh, I, I notice like a lot of my younger students, they want numbers. They want to know, you know, what the launch angles are. They want to know what the ball speeds are, what the swing speed is, what what the spin ratio is, you know, how far is it carrying, how far is it rolling out, where players in the past – you know, we really didn't have that kind of information available to us. Uh, that's just something that's come on lately. And the other thing I would tell you is fitness. You know, when I started playing golf, you know, and I, I was a weightlift, I was a competitive weightlifter. And, you know, everybody would tell me, you're crazy for lifting weights and playing golf. You know, the two just don't go together. But my answer to that was they go together as long as you stay flexible. You know, yeah, you can lift weights, but you can also do things to keep your body flexible so that you're able to make a good rotation, so you're able to make a, a good swing. You know, again, today, fitness is huge in golf. Every Look at all the tour players. They've all got some kind of fitness guru that they work with, along with nutritionists and, and uh, mental game coaches and short game coaches. And, you know, it's now – not just one coach, they have, you know, uh, an entourage of people that, that work with them. You, um, you just spoke about using the coaching technology and we brought this kind of up with last week's episode with Richard Woodhouse using coaching technology as a, as a communication tool. And I think you kind of explained that perfectly. The, the players want to know that information. They want to know what's going on and you can use that to explain the things that you're coaching as opposed to them having just to trust you. 
Exactly. You know, if you can if you can show them how the launch angle has changed or if you can show them how they've picked up some distance through something that you've done, you know, it just reinforces those things that you're trying to uh, impress upon them, Brent. And, and I think that's been very, very helpful, even even to people that I coach my age. I'll still use some form of technology with them if it's not getting them on video or getting them on a launch monitor just to kind of give them an idea how far they're hitting it. You know, they're not maybe so hung up on the launch angles and and how much the ball spin is and, and what the ball speed is. But, you know, it, it, it's it's there. It's available. And my feeling has always been the better educated I am the more educated I can make my players. You know, I've never been, even at my age, I still go to seminars. I I still love talking to people like you, listening to your podcast, talking to Jason Hellman, talking to Mike Fay, you know, talking to other teachers here in Michigan, because I learn from that constantly. and, And I never want to stop learning is what I would tell you. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really cool thing. It's um, you are keen to evolve, and that makes you a, a good coach. There's plenty of coaches out there that don't want to to move forward and don't want to develop their skills any uh, any further. So the fact that you're keen to do that is is really really powerful, and um, you should certainly take that as a huge positive for yourself as a coach that you are keen to keep building those skills. Well, I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That, that's all I'm you can do. I'm not going to stop, Ron. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great, I think. Um, we're going to take a bit of a detour here because you piqued my interest when you said you were a competitive weightlifter. Tell yep. me about that. Yeah, yeah. I started uh, competitive weightlifting back in, uh, this would have been in my last year in college, so 1975. And uh, I, I power lifted for two years. I, I actually finished uh, third in the state in the junior state championships in 1975. And then in 1977, uh, I started lifting for a local YMCA. Uh, there was a coach there that felt I could be a good Olympic lifter because, you know, I'm not, I, w- I wasn't real tall. I had broad shoulders. I had probably uh, uh, the body more of an Olympic weightlifter. So we started doing, you know, snatches, clean and jerks. Uh, uh, at that time, the military press was part of Olympic lifting. And I actually won a state championship in 1977 and competed in uh, some national events and then kind of hung it up, Brent, probably in 1978 or 1979 and just started. I continued to lift weights just to, to stay in shape. But um, I, I competitively, competitively lifted for four or five years. And, you know, I hate to say this, I didn't have real good coaching back then. Now, you know, you talk about coaching, you know, back then they didn't teach you how to strengthen parts of your body to make your lifts better. They didn't work on form, especially with things like snatches and clean and jerks, which require a lot of speed and strength. You know, uh, the way my coach told me, that I would lift better would be to lift heavier in my workouts. And consequently, that's what we did. And I, I suffered some some pretty good injuries. And, and that's probably one of the reasons I, I had to have my shoulder replaced last year is over time, it just wore out from not being strengthened the way it should have been strengthened back in those days. So um, again, this goes back to your, your coaching podcast where, where you're, 
you understand how good coaching can make an athlete. You also understand how, I don't want to say bad coaching, but, but uneducated or uninformed coaching can really hurt a person. And, and that's pretty much what happened in my weightlifting career. You know, it was just lift heavy, lift heavy, lift heavy with no concept of what it was doing to my body and what it was doing to my form. And when the form got bad, that's when the injuries happened. Wow, that's, that's, that's surprising to me. You would think, especially in that type of sport where you're lifting heavy weights, if you haven't got the technique right, you can do yourself some really serious damage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you which, can. Um, which, again, just goes to reinforce with golf coaching as well, that you need to be aware of what your students can and can't do. If you're trying to get them to make changes that they can't physically make, you're going to hurt somebody. Exactly. Exactly. It's, um, it's extremely important to make sure that you do have an understanding of how, how their body moves so you don't end up broken down as you get older. Well, that, that was it. You just said the key word there, how your body moves. You know, Back in those days, coaches weren't really paying attention to how your body moved. You know, it was, They were just trying to get you to lift as much weight as you possibly can with, again, very little um, form work and technique work. It was just lift heavy, lift heavy, lift heavy. Have you have you seen that change in golf coaching over, over your time in the golf industry? Have you seen coaches become more educated in understanding how people move before they make changes? It's, I'm guessing early on in your career was like you do it this way and that's the only way you can do it? Yeah, that's pretty much how – I don't want to say my way or the highway, but that's pretty much how, how coaches went nowadays. Yeah, look at all the golf professionals – that go through that Titleist Performance Institute, you know, just to, to start learning on how the body works. I know when I went through it, I loved it. I, it was probably the best three days I spent doing anything <laughs> was learning how the body moved and how it worked and why things were happening and why you could tell a student to do something. And maybe the only reason they couldn't do it was because they had some some something going on in the body that needed to change, you know, or maybe there was an in, you know, an injury that you didn't know about, but through TPI, you can learn and you can give them things to help them through that. You can give them things to help them strengthen those areas that may be weak, or you can give them something to work on balance, work on core strength. I mean, uh, that kind of stuff wasn't available, or if it was available, when I first started teaching, I certainly don't remember anybody really talking about that, you know? Yeah, yeah. It is, it is certainly an improvement in coaching. So that kind of leads into my next question nicely. So what other changes have you seen in coach training in, in your country over the years? Well, I, I would tell you, uh, to me, the, the communication skills are getting better because the golf professionals are becoming more educated. You know, one of the things I'm seeing now, Brent, is, is golf professionals networking a whole lot more with other golf professionals than they did before. I mean, it, it, when I first started teaching, it was like everything was guarded, you know, and, and it was like you had information that you didn't want people to know about, you know, because that was your thing. And it was like you were stealing information from people. Now, I mean, the golf professionals are so willing to share information and they're so willing to 
to help other golf professionals become better teachers. I mean, just look at what we see on the internet nowadays. I mean, you can see all different instructors showing how they give a lesson. You can get their takes on certain things. Uh, you can get the takes on science. You can get the takes on movement. I mean, the, we have so much more available to us to educate ourselves. And that's why, like I told you, I will never stop learning because I'm just fascinated by learning. And I'm just fascinated by listening to, to these other golf professionals and seeing what they do. I mean, I can't tell you how much I enjoy just the opportunity to talk to you and Brent, uh, you and Jason and Mike when we do our podcasts on Sunday nights because I'm, I'm learning every time I hear you guys talk because your wealth of knowledge is, is phenomenal. And, and to me, it's, it's, a learn, a, it, it's just a, a great educational tool. So that's the one thing I can tell you that I didn't see a lot back in those days with the sharing of information. I think that that's a really valid point and it is so much more open in the golf coaching community these days because you can find your inf other people's information really easily, which is great. And I think more people, as you said, are much more open to sharing their information and you always pick up something new and I don't know about you, but I've got subscribed to 10 or 15 different golf podcasts and you always <laughs> pick up different things from different people. So it's um it's cool that we're certainly much more open in that space, which is really exciting as a golf coach. It is. It's not proprietary information anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that's it. And said, I think if people are, are not interested in sharing information, possibly it's not really good information. If they're that insecure, they're not happy to share it. Um, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but when I was first coaching in Australia and then went overseas to coach in Taiwan, um, I had 10 or 15 kids that could do exactly what I told them to do. And I worked out that some of the stuff I was coaching wasn't right because they could do it and it wasn't getting them good ball flight. <laughs> so you have to ev evolve and change and being open to this information, being open to other people sharing it is, is, is really, really cool and really, really a good thing of building your own coaching skills. Definitely. Now, you have a title after your name as Master PGA Professional. Can you explain what that is and how you how you got that title? Yes, that's the highest um, ranking that a professional here in the United States can get. And it's basically based on educational things that I had to do to reach that status, as well as I had to write like a master's type thesis that I had to submit to a panel at the PGA. Uh, give you a little background on that, Brent. I had to... Uh, you, you had to kind of go above and beyond your class A status. Uh, you know, I went and took a lot. I, I traveled the United States basically every winter taking classes. Uh, you know, I take like teaching classes, coaching classes, uh, how to buy a golf course, uh, rules. Um, and boy, I'll, I'll, you know, how to, how to be a, a general manager, uh, just different things to kind of broaden my education and my background. And, and then, like I said, you, you had to write a master's type thesis. It took me a year to write the thesis. I submitted it to the panel and unfortunately they didn't pass it. So I had to completely rewrite the whole thing, which took another year. 
and then submitted it to the PGA and finally the three the three raters that they have that, that do this type of thing passed it. But it, it was a lot of work. Uh, you know, it was a lot of study. It was a lot of education. It, it, it's something that I always wanted to achieve. I knew a couple master professionals um, and, and they highly suggested that it was a great way to educate yourself and and it could help you in time get a better position at a country club or, or at a golf course or a golf facility. And and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Brent, I didn't want to just be a quote unquote golf professional. You know, I, I aspired to a higher level and uh, a, a couple, I, I, again, I had some really good mentors in that area. Um, Jim Dooling, who, who's a fellow professional here in Michigan and um, uh, another gentleman, uh, who used to be the pro at St. Clair Golf Club a long, long time ago, but kind of moved on and, and moved himself into a general manager's position, highly encouraged me to do things like that. Don Pernay was his name. He was a very well-known professional here in the United States. But uh, he, he told me one thing, you know, he said, the, the more you can educate yourself and the more that you know, the higher you can reach as far as your your occupation is concerned. So, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I didn't want to just be a head professional at a golf course for 35 or 40 years, retire from there. They give me a gold watch and, you know, off you go. You know, I, I just wanted to do more. I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about the entire golf industry because my goal was really to own a golf course. And if you're going to own a golf course, you better know every little thing about it. You better know turf grass. You better know food and beverage operations. You better know how to run a pro shop. You better know how to teach. I, I mean, there's so many things that encompass owning a golf course. Um, so that's what my ultimate goal was. And I, I'm pretty lucky. I got a chance to reach that and own my own course for 12 or 13 years. Yeah, that's really cool, and I'm going to cover that in a second. I just want to go back quickly to the master professional. Um, I'm sure you weren't thinking this at the time when they didn't pass you and sent it back to you to redo, but to me that would make the qualification a lot more valuable because they aren't just passing everybody. They've actually got some standards there and they're actually making sure you complete that type of work properly before giving you that title. So I'm curious on your thoughts on that. Well, what happened, you know, obviously I was disappointed, but obviously, yeah, you're exactly right. They're not just going to pass you because you submitted this paper. And what what I did after I did not pass, uh, my understanding, two of the three Raiders passed it and one didn't. All three have to pass it. Um, I got a hold of another master professional that was a general manager like I was at the time, and I, I handed him the paper. And I had him read it. And he told me, he said, first of all, this is a really well-written thesis. And he said, I'm going to steal a bunch of ideas you have in here. And he said, I think what you need to do is just tighten it up a little bit. You know, the, you may not have passed it because there were some areas that I probably didn't give enough information on. So that's what yeah, I did. Yeah. I went back in, Brent, when I, I wrote it the second time and I really paid uh, a whole lot of attention to detail uh, in certain areas of running a golf club. Uh, 
because that's what I wrote my thesis on the, the 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 golf professional as a general manager and how much different that is. You know, when you're dealing with waiters, waitresses, bus people, members on a constant basis, uh, you know, running a grounds crew. Uh, making sure that they're doing the right things down in the pro shop. I mean, there's a, a lot of responsibility in that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I got the message. You know, I was disappointed, but I got the message. You know, and I have to change it and make it better. And that's what I did. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Now, obviously, golf world is evolving over time. And the days of just being, as you said, being a standard golf professional is, uh, I think, are long gone. Um, I think you're ahead of your time and you're saying that you you didn't feel like you were going to be just a standard golf professional, just a golf professional. Um, what advice do you would you have for people out there that are keen to move into that, as you said, GM-type roles or golf course ownership-type roles? Well, definitely you're going to want to educate yourself. You're going to want to learn all all aspects of, of golf. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with being a golf professional. It's a very honorable uh, position. In my case, like I said, I just aspired to, to, to seek, you know, a higher level. And th- the more education you can get, the more you can learn about, like I said, food and beverage, turf grass management, how to deal with people, especially managing staffs and managing members and uh, learning how to communicate. Uh, to me, the communication skills are, are most important. One thing I, I I can say about a lot of golf professionals moving into a GM position, especially if it's at the club that they're at, they got a leg up on that because they know the members. And that's a huge step. It's not like you're walking into a club that you've never been at. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's no familiarity with you from the members part or the staff part. So, you know, a golf professional that that's maybe looking to move up at the facility he's at, like I said, has a leg up because they know he he's got a real good concept of how the club is run. He knows the membership. They know him. There's a certain level of comfort comfort there between the two. <clears throat> so it, it then becomes a matter of just educating yourself, Brent, and learning more about all aspects of the business, so to speak. You know, I, I love the business of golf. I can tell you that. I love talking about, you know, I had one of, a, one of the, the members of the club here call me last night to ask me about, you know, my thoughts on how we should be handling golf with the, you know, the coronavirus going on right now. And, and you know, we, we talked about different ideas and different ways to keep the courses open, but keep people at their social distance so no one's getting infected. And, and the other thing is, Brent, you know, if, if these golf courses, especially here in Michigan or this part of the country, they're going to have to start maintaining them. That means they're going to have to have people out there cutting grass and putting chemicals down and, and doing things to keep the golf courses in shape. <clears throat> Otherwise, you know, this isn't something you're going to just go ahead and do in June, you know, if that's when – you know, the, the worst of this is over. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things in the industry right now that we've got to take a look at and how this coronavirus is affecting all of us. Yeah, it certainly is. And, but it gives you a chance to evaluate where you're at as a, as a, as a professional and maybe improve your skills and do some of that education you were talking about. So hopefully see the positives out there as well. Yeah, exactly. 
So how did the golf course ownership come about? Was that just an opportunity that just came up or would you actively go and seek it? Well, we, my, my partner and I actively went and sought it. Uh, we were both tired of um, kind of working at private country clubs and working with boards and things like that. And, you know, we, we wanted to start making decisions on our own. So um, we started looking around and we, we saw that uh, the government was selling a golf course up in the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan. And we went up there, took a look at it, and we were fortunate enough to uh, purchase it from them. And, um, you know, that's what we did. We ran it for, for 12, 13 years, like I said, and like I said, got involved with some other business people up there and formed this development company and bought all this housing from the government and, you know, bought these various buildings from the government, you know, for, a, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you, for a quarter on the dollar. And then we just started developing everything, you know. We started selling homes. We did not only golf. You know, we had a bowling alley. We we had, uh, you know, a lot of, we had a fitness center. I, I mean, we had a lot of property and assets up there. And it was, I would tell you, a very educational 12 to 13 years of learning how to run not only a, a golf facility, but other facilities as well. So, um, it was fun. It was stressful. It was hard work. And, uh, you know, after 12 to 13 years, Brent, it was time to come home to my family, too, because while I was doing all of this, you know, I was uh, six to eight hours away from them and I would be gone. You know, I wouldn't see my family for usually six to seven months out of the year. So it just it, got difficult. You know, my parents were getting older. They, their health wasn't good. I, I, I miss, you know, to be quite honest with you, I miss my wife and kids. I was missing their activities and it got to the point where I felt I owed them something because for all those years they supported me and it was about time that, you know, you know, it was, it was time to come home. It was time to sell off all that stuff. And, and, uh, just come home and be a dad and a husband. So that's what I did. Completely understand that. And yeah, it's really help, uh, really good of you to share that insight with us. I think that was, that was really cool. So um, we've gone a bit off the, the golf, pure golf coaching topics, which is great, but it kind of means that I'm going to have to get you back on at some stage to talk about business coaching. Sure. I think, um, I think part of the coaching uncovered podcast is going to be some, some, coaching in that small business area so you've obviously got some expertise and some experience in that area as well so we might do a second episode at some stage and get you talking about that but um also off the pure golf coaching topic is rules so we're all part of team mike Fay. we do some work for for him on his on our on our other podcast and also on his website so you're the rules expert so how did you get into that side of it well, I, I was encouraged by Warren Orlick, who was uh, at that time, th this was back in the probably early 80s. Uh, he was the uh, chief rules official for um, the PGA of America. And uh, he had done the Masters. He had done U.S. Opens. He had done the British Open. He had done all the majors. And, and he encouraged me. Uh, again, it was something that he said that a lot of professionals really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to. And uh, so I did. I, I, I took some rules classes and I, I was, uh, again, 
just enthralled by by the rules. I mean, how how uh, intricate they were, uh, how important they were, and um, so I, I learned. I passed the uh, the test to to be to become a rules official, and I started working. You know, local Michigan PGA events, which I still do on occasion now. But that's that's. I was encouraged by Warren Orlick um, to get involved in it, and and it was another way too, Brent, for me to do something uh, for the PGA, for the Michigan section, because uh, there wasn't any. All the rules officials <clears throat> were were basically, uh, you know just people maybe that were members of the golf association of Michigan, they, they weren't golf pros. And I can't tell you how many times I've worked tournaments where golf pros feel comfortable knowing that another golf professional is out there as a rules official. You know, I'm not going to tell you that, you know, guys don't try to test me at times or, you know, they sometimes, uh, you know, they can get a little testy with you and a little short and pert with you, but you know, you learn how to handle that. And uh, as long as you know your stuff and you make good decisions, or if you don't know, you, you get someone in to help you, it, it all works out. But I got into it, you know, uh, on the encouragement of Warren Orlick, who was known uh, as Mr. Rules. Mr. Rules. Okay. <laughs> well, that's cool. And again, it gives you other opportunities to do um possibly other income streams. I don't know whether you get paid to do rules at different tournaments yes. and stuff like that, but there's other other income streams and, um, yeah, that's certainly certainly pretty cool. So um, you've heard the podcast before, so we've got a fast four questions for okay. you to finish off the podcast. So um, before we get that, just thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Um, thank you, Brent. Been, this has been outstanding. It's been really cool having a chat and I um, certainly love – this is the – the beauty of me doing this podcast i get to pick the brains of some really good operators so that's really cool thank you so the first question in the fast four is what advice do you have for golf coaches starting out in the industry now get as educated as you can talk to other golf professionals read you know get on youtube watch what other coaches are doing contact other coaches uh contact coaches in your section but you know my thing get educated learn as much as you possibly can. It seems to be a common theme that's popping up for that answer. So I might have to tweak <laughs> tweak that question as we go along through the through the season. But that's definitely um, something that um, I think is important to, for, golf, for golf coaches starting out is to make sure you've got that education behind you. Um, advice for players. So advice to the golfers starting out there. Practice. You know, <laughs> practice, practice, practice. The, to, again, that's another thing that I try to encourage players. You know, not only hitting balls, but working on your short game. You know, practice your putting, practice your chipping, practice your full swing. Go out and play because the only way you're going to learn to score is to go out and play. So, you know, it's got to be a combination of, of um, I would tell you, practice and playing time. And also, you know, once you feel your level is getting proficient, get yourself into some tournaments. See how you do in competition. See how you do under the gun. And I think you can learn a lot from from competing, Brent. You know, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what you can handle, what you can't handle, what you need to strengthen, you know, if if you have some weaknesses in that level. I certainly like that. I think too many players out there don't put their skills under under pressure under a, in a competition-type setting. So, 
I certainly think getting out there and learn the skills, but apply them on the golf course sooner rather than later and in competitions as well. Really cool advice. So anything that you would change in your journey, in your coaching career, anything that you would you would change over in the past that you would do differently? Not at all, Brent. I'm I'm completely content with with what I've done. I I my goal was to own a golf course, you know, and my goal was to learn as much as I could about the golf industry. And I I feel I reached that level. I was lucky enough to do that, and uh, I'm thankful for it. And uh, no, I wouldn't change a thing. I like where I'm at. <laughs> That's a completely valid answer, and yeah, I would certainly change a few things in in my own career. But that's a completely valid answer. I haven't got any any issue with that whatsoever. So, with your years of experience in the golf industry, where do you see golf coaching going in the next five years, or golf in general? First of all, I see golf coaching get even better than what it is because, like every career, things are evolving, things are changing, and they're changing pretty rapidly. And I just see golf coaching getting even better now. And I see teachers, you know, like yourself, like Jason, like like Mike, continuing to evolve as the technology is evolving and, and as um, fitness is evolving and and as you know the way the way you prepare yourself to play it, it changes. So um, that that's what I see in that area there. Yeah, so you, I suppose you just tend to see more more coaching strat, just coaching improving, information yeah. getting better and better. I see it getting better, without yep. a doubt. Without a doubt. So, thank you again for your time today, Frank. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me online. On, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's FG Cards. I'm on Instagram, FG Cards. Um, you know, and, that, and that's because I sell uh, – Sports cards, <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> which just, I know we just... didn't get a chance to talk about, but <laughs> no, this is about, let... not about selling baseball cards. <laughs> no, let's let, let, let's talk about it now because that was something that I didn't pick up until just recently. That your Twitter handle is FG Cards, and yeah. it wasn't until Mike explained what that actually was. So you sell baseball cards as well? Yeah, yeah, I sell baseball cards on eBay, and that's my eBay handle. And um, I used to do, I actually used to go to shows and things like that, and set up and. And, you know, I travel the country, I, uh, well, not the country here in the United States, you know, going to different states, doing these card shows and stuff. And I, I really got into it. I, I had my, my mother didn't throw out my collection, you know, which was a big thing back in my day. And um, I, I, I got reintroduced to it after I got out of college and I started adding more to my collection. Although back in those days, Brent, you know, when, you know, this was back in 1975, adults collecting baseball cards were considered kind of strange. So <laughs> a lot of people didn't know about it. <laughs> but again, you know, it's a, it's a hobby that started evolving and started getting big and mushrooming. And as this mushrooming, mushrooming, mushrooming was going on um you know i got more involved in it to the point where not only was i collecting but i started to buy stuff to resell and now primarily that's what i do you know i sell sell i buy and sell sports cards every day every single okay. day it's probably like 
a commodities broker, you know, only I'm doing it with cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. I, I, I like that. And hopefully we'll get some other, like we might, might get a baseball coach on the Coaching Uncovered podcast at some stage as well. So they might get a few baseballers listening to that, get you a few more sales. But um, well, love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> mate, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know it's um, you're a busy, busy man and taking the time out to come and chat to us is, is um, it's certainly appreciated. So thank you so much for your time. Um, I'll put some links to all your social media stuff in the, the episode description. And um, we'll get everyone out there. So, again, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us, and um, we'll catch up with you all soon. Thank you so much, Brent. This was really a, a great time, and and uh, I, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.